hello out there, thinkers, linkers, and mappers. We are really happy to host a series of conversations around the topic of tools for thinking. Our longer-term goal is to spark a diverse, connected, shared memory that will help us make important decisions together. Our near-term goal with these podcasts is to blow more oxygen on the growing tools for thinking sector, addressing key issues and talking with people who are doing the work. This podcast is created by Betaworks, a New York City-based startup studio. I'm Jerry Mikulski, your interlocutor and obsessive mind mapper. Our topic today is a different aspect of tools for thinking. We're going to dig into generative art. Our guests are Imad Mostak, founder of Stability.ai, David Sally, a well-known American painter, photographer, and more, and entrepreneur Danica Lazak, moderating their conversation. But first, John Borthwick and I are going to frame this discussion for a couple of minutes, then we're going to jump into the episode. Uh, this conversation took place on stage recently at Founders Forum in New York. And John, I think you were there, right? Yeah, yeah, I was there. This was a uh, discussion that we uh, that we set up between Imad and David, and Danica moderated it. Uh, and it was fascinating to see the juxtaposition of an amazing creator, artist, and an amazing entrepreneur. Uh, talking about uh, how uh, generative models uh, are being used and can be used by uh, by artists. And so the background here that uh, I think is important to understand for the discussion is, is that uh, there is a startup here in New York called EAT, which stands like, for... Like the word startup. EAT? No, no. Uh, EAT, we were told never... We never, never say EAT. EAT. Never say EAT. Okay. And so uh, EAT stands for Experiments in Art and Technology. And uh, it has actually a long history behind that name, but, but um, I'm not going to go into that now. Uh, the, the New York team uh, started working with David Sally uh, this summer, and they gave him some, uh, he gave them some sketches, which they put through a generative model, uh, Rudali in this case. And then... Uh, they created a set of generative outputs, which David has started to paint, uh, which is just totally fascinating, right? We're going from, you know, sort of human sketches to machine generated images to actual paintings. And so you'll hear in the episode how David has been using this model in his creative process to you know, sort of get out of his own head and to use inspiration for model outputs that he might have never imagined. I'll also mention that the AT team are going to do an NFT drop based on these physical physical paintings, uh, and related uh, and related NFTs will be meet, minted. If you're interested in that, you should definitely follow EAT uh, Works uh, on Twitter, which is at EAT Works NYC uh, for updates on the project. I think that's good for the intro, Joe. That sounds great. Uh, thanks, John. And so now here's the session from Founders Forum. Hi, everybody. I'm Dana Kalashuk. I work with a company called EAT Works. It stands for Experiments in Art and Technology. So I've got Experiments in Art and Technology right here. Um, but we are a cultural production house, really pairing artists with advanced technologies to see if we can use them inappropriately and make new possibility both for the art and for the technology. So um, we're going to talk about that a little bit today. 
Got David Sally, a painter, artist, well-known and, and widely credited with help kind of ushering in a postmodern sensibility and by, uh, you know, with his work. And Damon is the founder of Stability AI and uh, recently, okay, <laughs> recently uh, released Stable Diffusion. Some of you may have heard of that. Anyone heard of Stable Diffusion? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Has anyone tried playing around with it? Few people. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you haven't slept. <laughs> um, awesome. Cool. Well, let's start with you, Ahmad. Why don't we just, let's do some level setting since not everybody has played around with it or even may know, um, you know, what you're building. Can you tell us a little bit about Stable Diffusion and Stability? Sure, Danica. Thank you. Um, so Stability is a UK-based AI company, and we build the most advanced open source artificial intelligence in the world. Nice thing to say. Um, stay, over the last year, we've been funding and uh, basically creating the entire open source AI art space, and it's just taken off uh, to kind of augment people's ability to be creative. Stable Diffusion itself took two billion images, 100,000 gigabytes, and made a two gigabyte file you can run on your MacBook that's learned about all of them. So you can have a Tesla Roadster on Mars in a rainforest. Or, I don't know, Robert De Niro's Gandalf is one of my favorites. He can make a great Gandalf. Um, yeah, and it's just been amazing because we released it open source at the end of August. People have taken it and they've just created wonderful things um, to extend it and put themselves into it as well. Because I think that's the best way of AI. Not AI that targets us ads and tries to get us to consume, but AI that expands our potential and allows us to create. Mm. Um, that's a great segue, David. Um, uh, David, you work with traditional artist schools, I would say, at least in this room, mm. canvas, yeah. paint and mm. paintbrushes. Had you used technology much before in, in sort of your creation? I had used, um, yeah, first of all, as Danica said, I'm, I'm a painter in the most old-fashioned, traditional technology, I mean, one of the oldest technologies still in use. Um, so I'm, I'm coming at this from a very different orientation. But about 10, 12 years ago, uh, a friend of mine introduced me to the effects palette of, on, on Photoshop, the kind of things that any, you know, a child can, can do. And I was intrigued by the machine's ability to create a vortex-like uh, centrifugal shape out of whatever I gave it. Uh, and those f uh, made a series of paintings um, which were, you know, somewhat successful. But that would pique my interest, and then years went by. Um, I had been working for some time interpreting in my paintings drawings that had been made uh, by a New Yorker cartoonist in the, in the 30s and 40s and 50s. They have a very, like most cartoons, a very strong black outline which defines the form. I wanted to see what else we could do with those images besides just reproduce them or just incorporate them into larger compositions. So we trained uh, Rue Dali on this body of work, and it generated versions of the same images in which the original is recognizable, and yet the whole composition is imbued with a sense of drama drama def pictorially defined as contrast of lights and darks. 
that is something that neither the original cartoonist, Peter Arno, could have imagined, nor, or, nor I could have mm. imagined. And they were, truly was, were fantastical in that there weren't, here's the distinction that's a little bit hard to make. It wasn't that they were imaginative on the level of, of fantasy. They were imaginative on the level of structure. The AI had interpreted the structural, formal, the, the ability to, to create a sense of form in the original and had reconfigured entities, people, people-esque shapes in a way which was essentially formal, they said form giving. Mm. And that's, that's to me the breakthrough. And I, and I hadn't seen that before in any of the digital art that I've been looking at in the last few years. I've seen you know, lots of things that look like other things and lots of things which sort of look like science fiction fantasy and lots of things which look like whatever people think the imagination looks like. This was something else entirely. This was almost like a subatomic analysis on the level of pictorial structure. And I was really stunned by it. So, that, so now we want to be able to tell it more, um, give it some suggestions which are, which are more adjectival or metaphorical. Yeah. Let's come back to that in a second, because I, I, I wonder, Matt, if that's, you said, you know, this, this is this great tool for artists, self-expression, our creativity, exploring our creativity, sort of putting shape to it. Um, if we back up a bit, you know, what are some of the ways you imagined it being used, and what are some of the surprises? Because this was certainly surprising to me when we started, you yeah. know, yeah. when David started working with it, but I'll, you know, like... Yeah, so um, RU Dali was one of the earlier versions of this technology from our team, and so we've been iterating through it. What these models do is the classical old AI that was used to target you ads was about extrapolation. You take a large amount of information, you extrapolate it. It learns your preferences and then consumes your attention. This is a bit different because what happens is you take a big supercomputer. So like stable diffusion was trained on a supercomputer as fast as the fastest supercomputer at NASA, which is big. And it pays attention. Attention is all you need is the original paper in 2017 that kicked off this new type of AI to the structure to the hidden layers of connectivity. Mm -hmm. So it actually resonates now, this type of art, whereas it didn't before. You kind of felt something was a bit wrong. Mm -hmm. The Uncanny Valley is the classical example of that. Like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg in that meta-announcement a few days ago, to be honest, that AI digital face of his is probably more human than he is in kind of <laughs> some of the things. That was a bit mean of me, I apologize. <laughs> um, but it is getting to that new level of resonance, shall we say. And so the thing for us was like, if we put this out there, it's this little file, that you can put in any process, what becomes of it? Because you can just say, Robert De Niro's Gandalf, and it comes out, you're like, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But the exciting thing is when you start iterating it in a process to unlock the creativity and open the doors to the multiverse. Mm -hmm. You know, it isn't just an Avengers thing. Like, these are different universe examples of these things. It's like, what could be? And then you want to be able to navigate in that and have this iterative loop, and that's what excites me. This is why like, now we're seeing it integrated into Photoshop and a whole bunch of other things. Mm. We're seeing people take it from 2D to 3D assets and then into movies to put themselves into movies and all sorts of other things. Mm. That's how we sort like almost this translation tool and this navigation tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, well, I think the, 
representational art, going back hundreds of years, is a translation tool. Mm. I mean, tra translating 3D into 2D is the original visual translation. It would be so great to be able to give the machine commands that are, that are emotional, emotion-based. Mm. And that's, that's, I guess, our next part of the project. Yeah. Uh, but I also want to emphasize that from my personal involvement, um, I'm making things which will then be translated back into paintings. Yeah. So it's, in a way, my bias and my way of evaluating the output is based on whether or not it's paintable, whether it's a paintable image. And what, what makes something paintable is, as I was talking about earlier, the structure, the, the, how the thing is actually put together. So you can see, in a way, the... Um, it's, it's a balance you know, type thing. It's, yeah. it's, it's a resonance thing where you know when you know because you've been doing it for so long and you've built up that wisdom and expertise. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think, again, like, it, one of the things we thought is that we would encourage people to go and learn about art and design and all these other things, because architectural versions, et cetera, mm -hmm. because you need that in order to achieve mastery over this, because otherwise it's like an unruly horse mm -hmm. that doesn't do what you tell it. As you learn more and more about the medium, you do that. And as David said, kind of with his thing, it's taking the first part of communication, and it's like having a speech writing aid, mm -hmm. but then his communication is through the physicality of yeah. Hey, right? Yeah. I mean, like... Right. Well, they, I mean, what we're looking for, I guess, is something called inspiration, where when, you, when you're, whether you're writing or painting or just thinking, there's the, the known, there's the, 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 the normal way of expressing mm. a thought. And then if you are lucky or inspired or talented, or a combination of all of those, the a phrase comes to mind that's so right and so... Um, it has such concision, such compression, that so much more meaning is, is encoded in that phrase than, than the kind of normal word order that someone might use automatically. That's the kind of thing we're always looking for. I mean, as artists, that we're like, oh, that's, a good day is when you have one of those thoughts. Yeah, I think it's not every day, right? No, <laughs> it's not, well, not every day. Yeah. Yeah, I think you know, most of life is entropy, and then bringing it down for that resonance is the key thing here. And as you said, it's like people do all sorts of things. Like you'll go off on a retreat or do all sorts of stuff to get that creativity. Mm. You suddenly have this like student helper mm. that can maybe help you iterate through that. And it's not just obviously artists, it's anyone. Mm. It's like creation is so much more fun than consumption. I mean, this is why Snapchat and TikTok took off, but still they're a bit weird, mm. you know? Whereas this, it's something else. And now it's available to everyone. Mm. Yeah. I think, you know, you just, kind of alluded, it's like having this, you know, student alongside you, right, who's, you know, helping, helping you see things differently. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a really different framing than some of the conversation around sort of yeah. these really powerful tools, which either veers towards um, the end of art. That would be the most, like, dramatic, hand-wringy, you know, <laughs> right? If everybody can create. If I can just use words to make something that's really, you know, that, that expresses myself better, mm. um, uh, I, I bet you disagree that that, you know, that that is, um, you know, brings about the end of art. I think there's something else in it for, for you. You know, you've talked to me a lot about yeah. kind of the choices 
and, and yeah, I mean, editing. And I, I mean, if, if it is, in fact, the end of art, is that really a terrible thing? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> all that would mean is that everyone's an artist. Yeah. Because art just is a category of human activity that some people do. If everyone can do it, I, I don't know if that's a bad thing. I, I don't think that's going to happen, at least not in the short term. But I could, but I could certainly be wrong. Maybe this, these tools are so powerful that everyone will have access to a level of creativity that was unimaginable. However, I, I tend to think that to be the same, I mean, simply our standards will get higher. Yeah, I think a rising tide lifts all boats, but you know, the medium and the message are two different things. So like my iPhone 14 has a 48 megapixel blah, blah, blah camera. <laughs> are there no more photographers in the world? Of course there's photographers. Mm -hmm. Because again, there's kind of, it raises the entry level and the entry bar. Yeah. But then you can do so much more with this because your iteration loops become so much faster. So the example that I give is that Gary Kaspar was beaten at chess because Deep Blue calculated more moves ahead. Then DeepMind came and used this type of AI to dream about playing Go. And Lisa Dolb was a seventh level Dan master, like the Magnus Carlsen of Go. And the next person was like a fourth level Dan. And there was like, no way it can beat him because there's too many moves. And then it learned the principles and it beat him seven to one. And did he go away and cry and quit? No. He got better because he's like, there's brand new ways to play that I'd never thought of before. And then the entire Go competitive area got better as well because there was a whole new world opened versus the old techniques and tools. Yeah, I mean, I can certainly imagine this being an incredible boon to art schools. If you could, I mean, the Go Masters mm. game got better. I mean, everyone's, everyone's game got better in terms of visualization and imagination. It doesn't, wouldn't have any effect on people's manual skills if you were painter, you'd still have to figure out how to make a painting out of it. But what I was, what, it raised the question for me of what is the relationship between these things, uh, these processes, people who use them, and taste. Is, does taste matter? Can we, t can we teach the machine good taste and differentiate between good taste and banal taste? I mean, this is an interesting thing, right? So for stable diffusion, what we did is, like I so said, we took two billion images, we squished them down using these mega computers. But we didn't stop there. Then we took the early version of it, and we had a beta where we created a Discord community that then rated all the outputs. And then we taught it taste according to that community. So if it's bad, blame it on them. <laughs> um, and so we trained on this aesthetic, as it were. Mm. But as it is now, it's trained on a certain aesthetic, which may not be your aesthetic. Mm. So what the community has now done is made it enabled through things called textual inversion and dream booth and all sorts of things mm. to take your taste and put it in there, because not everyone's tastes are the same. Of course. In fact, what is the universality of taste? So like one of the programs we have is we're deploying tablets to teach kids education in refugee camps around the world. So we've got literacy and numeracy in 13 months on one hour a day. And those tablets are now being loaded with this software. And the question, what do we teach them? Are we teaching them Van Gogh? Are we teaching them Ai Weiwei? Like, how are they going to prompt? Mm -hmm. Like, what is a prompt curriculum for a kid who's in a refugee camp in Malawi or a Rohingya refugee yeah. camp? And what is the taste that they'll do and how will they guide this? Do we guide them and give them the curriculum? Or do we just let them go wild and pick and choose? We're not sure yet. Yeah. We're still trying to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that, well, of course, taste is contextual, but that's part of what taste is. Yes. Taste is knowing how to adapt within a context. And of course, the context changes, taste changes. However, I do think there's something, I don't know, maybe taste is, is, a, is a kind of tainted word, but there is something about 
knowing how to make sense, how to make meaningful sense out of, out of a visual environment that you know, some, some people have a, an ability or a knack for it uh, greater than, than others, so. Yeah, look, I mean, I think there is this thing of art appreciation, shall we say. Mm -hmm. So there's a story that you tell, and there's a story of the person. And so there's an innate element of aesthetics, but then it goes beyond that, right, to yeah. the stories that you're telling. And so this maybe will help people tell different stories. Yeah, or better stories. Or better stories, you know? I mean, I was, I, just to use a, an example, which might seem a little bit far afield, I was at the ballet a couple of nights ago, and there was one great Balanchine ballet, kind of one of the cornerstones of modern ballet, and then two other contemporary works by very highly acclaimed choreographers, both one middle-aged, one much younger. And they're, they're both fine, I mean, they're perfectly, you know, um, they know their craft, but they're, they're boring and had no real joy, had no real uplift, mm. they, and really had comes down to taste. The musical taste was bad, the musicality was, was very, very mediocre. And I was reminded of a story that Balanchine told about himself when he was, when he was a young man, he was 26 or 27, when he was first hired by Diaghilev to choreograph for the Ballet Russe. Um, he'd already made um, Apollo, he'd already made a, one, of, you know, one of the great ballets of the 20th century. But all he really knew was, was ballet culture. And, and Diaghilev said, oh, my, you know, my boy, you, you're, you're, you're a genius, but you have no taste. Mm -hmm. So they were in Venice for the summer, and every day, Diaghilev would park Balanchine in front of a different painting in, in L'Academia, in the museum, in the classical museum. One day would be a, a Titian, the next day would be a Veronese, the next day would be something else. And Balanchine said, at the end of the summer, I had taste. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I think that's the thing, right? So, like, the father of computing could be considered Claude Shannon, and he had this thing called information theory, which boils down to information is valuable in as much as it changes the state. Mm. So if you're having mass-produced things that have no taste, that there's no new information, like, you know, the people who are nodding off in the audience here because they already know this, it's nothing new for them, it's not valuable. Mm. That is one aspect of it, but then, I said taste, he learned about all these other things, and so he had more information in order to change that state in the receiver, because that's art, right? Art is that you're trying to tell a story. And you're trying to understand the broad context. That might be a just aesthetic thing for humanity, mm. but you're talking to an audience and you know what your audience is, effectively. Mm. Mm. I think what we have with these models is that, you know, to be honest, we took a picture of the internet and the internet is very Western. You know? It's very what? Western. Western. Yeah. So it's a particular type of taste. So yeah. one of the reasons we released open source is like, wouldn't it be wonderful if every culture could create their own models and bring their own data and bring themselves into this? Mm -hmm. And then that would be richer. And then what stories could be told by that? Because only certain people can tell stories now, and most of the world can't. Because mm -hmm. the internet's been this amplifier that only amplifies certain voices. Mm. Yeah, quite interesting. Yeah. There might be an answer in that for the refugee camps in mm. Mali. <laughs> Let them tell their own, just leave it to them. Mm -hmm. Hold in the wall, let's go for it. <laughs> Let's see what stories they want to tell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, questions. We could keep talking. Okay. Is there... Hello. Hi. <clears throat> hey, guys. Thank you for the awesome panel. Um, so, I, uh, one of my friends is a creative, and I was like, hey, check out this Dolly thing. Isn't this amazing? Uh, and she's like, I hate that tech is doing this because it, like, makes everybody a creative and, you know, 
what's the point of creating anything if anybody could do it? Um, and I was kind of like stabbed in the heart. Um, you know, I did AI at Stanford, and you know, I'm very proud of the work we're doing here. Um, but I'm also afraid of the point she's making because we also created things like you know, uh, social networks, you know, the F1 and the I1 and whatever. And um, it turns out those things have many bad ramifications for society. So you know, from your guys' perspective, if you kind of look forward five to 10 years, these models get better. What are some of the like, the, you know, big potential problems you see, uh, you know, as te technology gets better? Thanks. So yeah, I'll just. I, that's a great question. I'll, it was on my list too. But you know, what what would worry you? That maybe if you're already worrying about it, you can try to develop <laughs> around it or against it. But you know, what are what are some of the things coming down? the pike or that are, I mean, it seems like there's unlimited potential, right, in some of these tools. So, I mean, if I can take that first, like, in five years, I believe we'll have this Ready Player One holodeck experience where you can create anything you can imagine in 3D or 2D or audio or anything, which is kind of insane. But I mean, like, this area is about to receive more funding than self-driving cars, because we're now fast enough, cheap enough, and good enough. And every single content provider in the world will be doing that. But then you have some major problems. If anyone can create anything, then what's the value of anything? You know, like right now, we took a snapshot of the internet. People are taking artist styles and things like that. Is that copyrightable or not? These are big questions that need to be addressed as a society and community. So we're building attribution systems. So any system that uses it can reward the underlying kind of artists or the underlying IP and others. Um, at the same time, we're working on the Digital Content Authority so that if you create a piece, it's verifiably yours and not a simulacrum because we're moving to increasing digitized age. Mm. Beyond that, I think it's more powerful if the community can come together and build solutions as opposed to this technology being restricted to any large companies because they're worried about what will happen. So only they can create, as it were, and only they get a say on it, like broaden it out to the world to be able to do that and build community around it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's good to keep in mind what is uh, the art experience. I mean, what is the kind of experience that people are having when they look at art, when they are involved in something that we give the name art to? Is that a, a very privileged experience or is it, is it or not? I mean, maybe, maybe it's, a, it's a cultural bias that has privilege, which is unnecessary going forward. I don't really know, but I do think as more and more things become commonplace, there will, as you were saying earlier, um, there still be distinctions will be made. This quality of experience will be elevated over that quality of experience by some experiencers, perhaps, and we don't really know what those things are. But people, I mean, humans always seem to make distinctions between one thing and another thing for whatever reason. There's, in my, I keep coming back in my mind to what I think of as a kind of core art communicative experience where, between the viewer and the object that is still so mysterious and so much beyond language. I think, and I think that it, but it's recognizable and identifiable as such. And I think that if people have ever had it or if they've ever imagined it, they will still want that, and they will still seek that, and still have it. It could, of course, be provoked by any kind of object, or non-object, or thought, or word, 
or any kind of prompt. However, I don't know, I'm not one of those people who believe that everything is art. I think art is a very, it's a, very, it's a separate category of, of it's a different kind of vibration, internal yeah. vibration. The resonance, basically, yeah. of the communication. Yeah. So it's about very much about communications. I think we don't know where it's going to end up, but I think it needs to be an open conversation with people having the tools and everyone having a say. Because it moves, the tech is moving faster than the culture, I think, and, and we need That's to sure. bring the culture yeah. along <laughs> yeah. and develop a culture. It's diffusing very rapidly. <laughs> Sorry, can I quickly, can I just ask a sort of slightly different question, taking us slightly off, off topic, but I just had a, was privileged to catch up with Emmett a bit earlier, and just the story of the entrepreneurial journey so far, your vision, and where you think you'll be in five years' time. Oh, it's putting me on the spot. Um, so how you got to this now is fascinating. You've raised your $101 million. How you got to this point, how you're going to change... Um, Sorry, that was Business Insider article. I'm not saying anything. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the press release is Monday, but yeah. Okay, yeah. So, something. You, ra you raised a large amount of money for a seed, fan, so seed yeah. round. Um, you have a vision for, to make the, a, the UK, the AI capital of the world, to be Demos 2.0 for one of a better moniker. Um, you know, in Notting Hill in particular, which I'm thrilled about. Um, so, and then, so within all that, have you got to be able to, have you got enough, have you got enough credibility to do what you've done already? And what's the dream for the next five years? Okay, uh, so yeah, I was lucky enough to be a privileged position where, you know, I got to go to Oxford. I was with Mustafa, actually from DeepMind there. Um, and then I was a hedge fund manager and I became a video game investor because I loved how people interacted with all this stuff. Um, and then my son was diagnosed with autism and I quit. And it was this multifactorial thing that every, no one could understand the hidden layers of meaning. So we used, I got a team and built artificial intelligence to read all the papers and then do molecular pathway analysis of all the drugs to repurpose drugs to adjust his symptoms. Because what happens with autism and ASD is there's too much noise. So you have to pay attention, you have to calm it down. Yeah. Similar to what these models do, they pay attention to the interesting parts. And that really resonated with me. And then went back to running a hedge fund, did that. Um, and then in 2020, 2021, I led the United Nations AI initiative against COVID-19 because there's so much information and no one knew what the hidden layers were. Mm. And in that, I looked at the future and I realized this AI is not AGI that's super intelligent. It's one of the most powerful tools that can either be used to control us or extend us. And does it make sense that any private company would control this in the future because it'd be more powerful than any government? Because mm. it allows you to be creative. It allows you to sing anything. It allows you to say anything. I was like, no, it must be open and available to everyone. So we take this around the world to emerging markets. We make it diverse so it isn't Western. And then that is a positive thing because there's so much value to be created. We don't know what some of the downsides are, but we can work through that with a society. And so we built these communities of tens of thousands of developers, built the most advanced AI in the world. And I think we're showing now that it's better. It's a better way to do it together rather than saying that we have to capitalize on this in order to extract value, create value, and then everyone benefits. Um, so that's why it's Stability AI. And my aim is basically to take this to every country so they can have their own models run by their own people, AI for the people, by the people, as it were. So, um, fascinating discussion, and I'm expecting the answer to my question to be no, <laughs> but I'm hoping that it won't be. Um, in your studies, have you seen anything that you wish hadn't been invented or discovered? Hmm. A genie you could 
put back in the bottle? Um, yes, I think that uh, I don't think that AI is going to hit AGI soon, but I could be wrong. I think there's some very dangerous things being built. I think that the large models being built by private institutions are far more dangerous than models in the hands of people used to extend themselves. Because we don't know what's going on and they're showing lots of capabilities that we don't understand. These are alien things and I do believe that large models should be regulated, similar to nuclear weapons because that is dual-use technology. I've had a lot of congressional letters calling me out and saying that my models should be banned and things like that, but I do think it's very different. Um, so I do kind of think that. I also think, you know, I don't have all the answers. It could be that we're doing artists a disservice than others, and we're not listening to their viewpoints correctly by doing this. But I just back the people, basically, and community to do that, as opposed to an unelected oligarchy. So, yeah. I've got one more, and I think that'll close this out. What excites you the most in working with this really advanced technology in your studio? What we were talking about earlier, that artists have always uh, talked about or thought about uh, trying to find ways to get beyond their own thinking, uh, whether it's through drugs or uh, chance operations or uh, deliberately uh, setting up stumbling blocks for themselves. I mean, one of the most dynamic painters of the last 50 years, George Boslitz, uh, has, starting in the late 60s, started painting things upside down, not painting something and turning the canvas upside down, but literally looking at someone and translating in his, his mind the brush mark that would be the hair, but putting it down below instead of on top where the, where the you know, where the, in, literally inverting reality which, if you think about it, is incredibly difficult to do. It's like walking, it's like walking backwards or having up, you know, it's just, it's so much more difficult than you would imagine. And the results were um, unexpectedly kind of, they just had a gravitas that was so rewarding. Anyway, that's just one tiny example. The point is, artists have always, are always looking for ways to surprise themselves, get beyond their own imaginations, get outside their own heads, um, declutter, get rid of their pre uh, um, kind of prior associations, their assumptions, and at the same time build on what they know. It's in a way a contradiction. I do think that this kind of AI is going to be a very valuable tool if, just for that, if, if nothing else, just to take what's already in progress, so to speak, one's own visual shorthand, visual language, accumulated over however many years, and do the equivalent of turning it upside down. Yeah. So seeing it through in a way that you just couldn't see it before, even if, even if it was in fact in plain sight. Mm -hmm. There's another, one of the ways we've been using it is actually very, very elementary. I'm sure it'll be all kind of cringy. It's so it's so simple, but there's, the surrealists invented this um, this parlor game called Exquisite Corpse mm. in the 1920s, where I'm sure you've all played it. Someone makes a drawing on one part of a piece of paper, folds it over so the other person can't see what they've drawn. They add 
another part, they fold it over and it goes around the room and you unfold the paper and it forms a monster or a person or a personage or something that where instead of one person being the author, it's a juxtaposition of all these different authors. There's something so, I mean, I'm gonna use a word that doesn't have much credence in the technological world, but I'm gonna use it, but it has so much charm. <laughs> it just has, has visual and intellectual and yeah. emotional charm. And in a way, that's what we're after. We're after that sense of charm and surprise. Mm. And I think we're, 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 we're starting to use AI for that purpose. Yeah. If I could just respond to that just quickly as well. I think the thing that excites me most is, you know, visionaries like David taking it forward because David has agency. So you take the tools and you use them or not. And that's what we see in the best AI artists, but they're not AI artists, they're artists. There's no such thing as AI art. Yeah. <laughs> it's just art or not, as it were. And I really hope that by giving these tools to the people and by making it in a community that works for the people, more and more people will believe they have agency because too much of the world believe they can't create and only consume. Yeah. And if we can flip that, the world's gonna become happier, which is awesome. Which is awesome yeah. and, and charming. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Tools for Thinking, a new podcast that might just help you with your thinking. If you're part of a startup in this sector, please knock on our door at betaworks.com. Mm -hmm.